All right. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. All right. It's cool to see everybody again. And um, I am uh, so honored to get to come back and speak on occasion. And so it's great. And uh, I think it's awesome that uh, Adam is taking two weeks off. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I'm very happy about and thankful for is that, um, you know, Adam can go on vacation for a couple of weeks and uh, you guys can let me come and hang out with you while that happens, and uh, especially to be able to preach in this new place, which I think is really awesome. And so um, I have uh, been looking forward to this uh, topic tonight for a while, and um, we're going to tackle the seventh of these Anabaptist core convictions. And so Adam has covered the uh, first six of these, and so I get number seven, which is uh, we are called to be peacemakers. And uh, we're going to take this over a couple of weeks and uh, we're going to kind of let it breathe. So tonight, um, it's going to be like a real nice Cabernet, all right? And we're going to uncork it tonight, and we're going to let it start to breathe a little bit. And next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to pour the glass, and we're going to sit down with the steak and really eat into it, okay? So here's what we're going to do is tonight, we're going to kind of lay a, f a framework of sorts uh, for this whole aspect of being peacemakers, okay? So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at something there before we bounce somewhere else. And uh, as you're turning there, let me read to you this core conviction of uh, this seventh part of, of Anabaptism. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. As followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals within and among churches, in society, and between nations. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. If ever there was a time that the notion of peace and being peacemakers uh, was more critical than, than in the past couple of weeks, um, you'd be hard-pressed to think of it in recent history. In the past couple of weeks, we have seen uh, horrific things on the news every single week. We've seen a passenger jet sailing through the sky at 35,000 feet be shot down by a missile that was fired from a conflict zone, and that is unacceptable in a world in which God has created people to live in harmony with his creation and with one another and in love. And so here you go, flying through the air, just headed for your vacation, and next thing you know, you're no longer. We saw horrible images last week on television as this conflict between Israel and Gaza continues. And as we're watching this conflict right in front of our very eyes, you're seeing these missiles be fired into what was intended to be a safe haven, a UN refuge place for children to go to. And, and they made that place uh, a refuge uh, in an in a elementary school. And so you have small children in an elementary school who are seeking a safe place when suddenly missiles land on them and we're watching the news and we're seeing terrible images as little small children are crying and screaming and parents are holding the limp bodies of their children who will never again breathe on this earth. 
I mean, this is a mess of a society we live in, and we live with these concepts that we are supposed to look and judge and determine who's the good guys and who's the bad guys, who are we on the side of, who are they on the side of, and in reality, there is no such thing as sides. There's just the creation that God has made and intended for His people to rule in His image and to love and care for this society and these people, and we do nothing of the sorts. Instead, we just chalk up you know, a point for this guy and a point for this one, and we keep score and we watch wars unfold before our very eyes. And it's tragic and it's horrible. And the sad thing about it is, is that throughout history, the church has had a terrible history in which the church has supported violent action. The church has marched into a, a land and wiped out people because of ethnic cleansing reasons or all sorts of things. And it's just tragic to think about the church having a history in which we have acted violently. No doubt this comes from horrible interpretations of our Bible, nonetheless being uh, the, what, the mess we've made out of the book of Revelation where we assume that you know, we just can run around and shoot each other during a tribulation period or some dumb thing like that. The reality is, is that as Christians, we are called to be disciples to Jesus. And Jesus is very clear about what discipleship means and what his role is in our lives as his disciples. And so I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 28 in verse 16 is where we're going to start. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Jesus has been crucified and he's been raised from the dead and now he has gone to this mountain and he's told his disciples to go there and meet him there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has the authority been given to? It's been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want to point out a few things here. Number one, look at this. Jesus is the one with all authority, and his authority knows no boundaries. His authority is in the heavens. And the heavens is the place where God reigns from. And so in the place where God dwells, Jesus possesses authority. And that's really important for us to understand because if Jesus possesses authority in the place where God dwells, then certainly Jesus possesses authority in the place where humanity dwells. And so it says that authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. That means that here... In our world, where we live and walk and move and breathe and work and play every day, Jesus has ultimate authority. He has authority in the realm of God, and he has authority in the realm of humanity. There is no place in all of creation where Jesus does not have authority. He has authority everywhere you could ever possibly dream in our minds if you could come up with some place far out in the cosmos that no telescope and no scientist has ever discovered nor ever will discover if you were able to even conceive of that little place, Jesus would have authority there. Amen. Everywhere you look, 
everywhere you go, Jesus has authority. He has authorities over the molecules that make up the chair that you are sitting in right now, and he has authority over your rear end as it sits in that chair right now. Jesus has ultimate authority over all of his creation. And anything that hasn't been created, Jesus has authority over it too. There's nothing, there's no one, there is no place that Jesus does not have authority. Nowhere. So wherever we look and we see people who claim authority, we have to recognize that it is an authority that they have that is temporary at best, and if they are not using that authority under the careful ear that listens to the voice of the one who has authority, then they're usurpers at best. That's what they are. Now, understanding Jesus' role, what's our role? Well, notice here's what he says. He tells these disciples, go make disciples of all nations. Now, a disciple, simply put, would have been just what these people were. Those who had walked with Jesus for years, they had studied his way of life, seen how he did things, saw what he said about things, and they had intended to imitate him in every way. And Jesus basically has said to these people, you are to go and reproduce in others what I have done in you. That means go out and make other disciples, other people who will be with me to learn from me how to be like me for the sake of this world that I have authority over. That's what Jesus tells these guys. And here's what he says to them. You're to make these disciples in every nation and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the word disciple and then right after that the word them. Who's the them that gets baptized? Disciples, right? So that means that right now we can wad up this idea we have in our brain that's a trashy idea oftentimes in our American evangelical kind of crazy ghetto we live in where we have this idea that I can get baptized and by getting baptized, I can become a Christian, but I don't have to really be a disciple of Jesus. I don't have to follow Jesus, listen to Jesus, and obey Jesus. I can just check off the, I get to go to heaven with Jesus box because I did the baptism thing. That doesn't work. And so we realize that it is those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are following Jesus, stepping in the footprints of Jesus with their own feet, learning from Jesus how to be like Jesus, who get baptized, and those people are supposed to do what? Look at what he says. Obey everything I have commanded. Everything. That means none of the things that Jesus has ever said that we don't like are optional for us. That means everything he has said are the things that we're meant to obey. Everything. And that's important because he has authority. Because he has authority in heaven and he has authority in earth, it means that he is the most well-suited person in the history of the world to inform us how to live our lives on earth. He's the smartest person there's ever been. And therefore, because in Colossians it says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are held in Jesus, that we must believe that all of the treasures of wisdom about how to live and knowledge about how to live are found in Jesus. 
And therefore, when we want to think about how to live, the best place to do or the best place to go is to look to Jesus and say, here in this person is the authority on how I should live my life. There is no such thing as living my life in, in a spiritual sense with Jesus over here off to the side, but then in the real world where I live, I don't really have to pay attention to Jesus because he doesn't know about the real world. He only knows about the fake world, the heaven world. And that has to be a fake world in, in most of my life because it's invisible and I don't see it and so therefore it doesn't matter. No, that's not true. Jesus has authority over every area of life. Wherever you work, Jesus has authority there. Whatever your vocation is, he has authority there. You have to look at your vocation and say, if Jesus Christ stepped into my life tomorrow and lived my life in my place, how would he work at this place? How would he work as this person in this vocation? That's the way you approach life because Jesus would do it better than you do it. So I have to believe then that if Jesus is the best person who's ever lived, he's the wisest person, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge belong to Jesus, then I have to assume that when it comes to world peace, Jesus knows best how to bring that about. I have to assume that when it comes to foreign policy, Jesus knows best. I have to assume that when it comes to ruling nations and ruling sovereign empires, Jesus knows best. Anytime we look to any person and assume that they know more, then we have confused this Jesus who we follow for being some marginalized peasant who knows nothing about the modern complexities of the world we live in. Rest assured, he was once a modern, or he was once a, a marginalized peasant. But when the stone rolled away, that concept of Jesus needed to forever be swept back into that dirty rock that he crawled out from behind. Jesus is not some marginalized peasant who doesn't know how to tell us what's best in this world. He's the reigning Lord who sits at the right hand of a father. And he is redeeming a world through those beautiful aspects of love and mercy that will one day bring about the redemption of the entire universe. That's who Jesus is. And so when it comes to the things that Jesus says about peace, we have to take him on these terms. We don't take him on some other terms. We take him on these terms that I've just laid out. This is the person who's telling us what to do. So let's look at Luke chapter 6. And we're going to just look at two verses. And then next week we're going to come back and look at the rest of them. Because we've got to let this breathe, right? So we're going to look at Luke and we're going to look at verse 27 here. And here's what it says. But to you who are listening, I say, oh, well, let's just stop. I don't want to go any further. But to you who are listening, now who's listening? Well, these disciples of Jesus are listening and some other people are listening. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus says, to you who are listening, I say. Now, who is this I say? This is the guy we just talked about with all the authority in heaven and earth. That's who it is. That means that this person who is speaking 
is speaking wisdom with authority, and it means that everything that follows what I just read where he says, I say, everything that comes after that means that we have to pay attention to it and hang our lives on it because it's the most important words that we're ever going to come across because of the person they come from. It's the source that makes these words so important to us. It's, you know, here's what it is. It's like if you did this when you were a kid or if you have kids, you know this all too well, and it goes like this. It's your kid out there and you say to your child, look, you know, don't go out there and get in that mud, all right? I, I see the mud and I know, I'm looking at you and I can tell that your little mind is spinning and you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to get in that mud and be covered in it, but don't do that, okay? You stay right here on the patio. Don't get off the patio in the mud. Okay. And then, you know, you go out a few minutes later, and your kid and his little, excuse me, his little buddies, they're all out there covered in the mud. And you go out there, and the first thing you say is, I told you don't get in the mud. And what do they say? But Billy said we could get in the mud. And you're looking, and you're going, Billy is four. Billy has as much sense as you do. The two of you in your four-year-old minds didn't know you weren't supposed to get in the mud because Billy's mom is picking him up in a minute and Billy doesn't have any more clothes to wear and I told you don't get in the mud. And he's just sitting there looking and says, but it looked like it would be fun, mom. And then come the words, and we've all heard the words, right? Either we've given the words or we've heard the words. Yeah, but what did I tell you, right? Ever heard that or said that as a parent? But what did I tell you? That means that whatever it is that you just heard, it doesn't matter what you just heard because I'm the authority here. I'm mom, I'm dad, and I told you don't do this. Why did you listen to Billy? Billy doesn't know. Billy wants you to be in the mud with Billy. I don't want you in the mud. Now, when we read these words, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What that means is, is that tomorrow, when you decide to hate your enemy and you decide to curse the one who curses you and then you turn and look and say, I know Jesus said, love your enemies, but this doesn't work in the world I live in. It's going to be the same sort of thing as hearing Jesus say, but Billy is four years old. He doesn't know. I know. I know. And so we continually perpetuate a complete disregard for Jesus as Christians whenever we as Christians decide that loving our enemies is some sort of optional thing that Jesus threw out in case we might like it. But if we don't like it, it's no big deal because it doesn't really matter because if the mud that looks like violence is enticing to us, then go play in the mud with all the other muddy people. But that's not the way it works. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love them. 
Love. We've talked about this before. There are four kinds of love in the Greek world. There was this form of love that was called storge, and storge was this affectionate love. It's like when you say, oh, hey, I, I, love, the, the, I love your shoes, or I, I love the, the paint, and I love this. It's this feeling where I, I, I have this emotive experience where I look at something and say, oh, I love that. It brings up such beautiful, warm feelings inside of me. And then there's this other form of love that's called uh, phileo, and it's this brotherly, affectionate sort of love. It's the way that you look at your children and you say, I really, I love these children of mine, and I feel some sort of affection for them. And, and I look at my friends and I say, man, I really love spending time with that person. And then there's eros, and that's the form of love that come, sounds just like what the, the, the word sounds like, which is an erotic sort of love. It's a sexual romantic sort of love. And when Jesus says here, love your enemies, he's not saying to you, I expect you to make out with your enemies, or I expect you to have affectionate feelings for your enemies and say, oh, I just love it when you slap me in the face. He's not telling you to look at your enemies and say, I wish you could just be my brother because then I could feel really great about you and you know, we could hang out together. He's not saying any of those sorts of things. Jesus says here, agape your enemies. And agape was that form of love that was an, a, a universal, unconditional, willing the good for the other person at an expense to oneself. It's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates when he goes to the cross and he dies for his enemies. There on the cross, when Christ stretches out his arms of love, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus is simultaneously being murdered and forgiving his murderers and redeeming his murderers. And he, as he's doing this, he is willing the good of the other at a great cost to himself. And this is what agape love means. It means that I will the good I want good, and I'll do good, even if it comes at a great cost to myself. That's agape love. And Jesus says, who are you to show this kind of love to? The kind of love that is willing to do whatever it takes to bring about good in another, even if it costs you yourself. Who? Your enemies. Love your enemies. The, the, the enemies there, this is a Greek word that, that communicates someone who is hostile towards you in both actions and feelings towards you. And I think this is important because a lot of us don't have enemies that shoot us. You know, most of us aren't in some, in that 1% motorcycle sons of anarchy world where, you know, we're just waiting for somebody to ride up and shoot us or stab us with a switchblade or something because we're in a motorcycle gang, right? That's not our enemies. But yet, we have people who have hostile feelings towards us. These are people who, when they look at us, they look at us and disgust comes into their mind. They don't like us. They don't acknowledge us. They see us coming and they think of ways to look away from us so they don't have to acknowledge us because they hate us and they wish we didn't exist and they wish we weren't even part of their lives and around them. They absolutely despise us. For some of you, it's your neighbors. For some of you, it's your coworkers. For some of you, it's some in-laws or relatives or somebody that used to be your friend and something happened and now there's a, a chasm that exists between you and there's hostility. And for the Israelis, it's the Palestinians, and for the Palestinians, it's the Israelis. 
It is the people of this world who hate each other and they have hostile feelings towards each other. And in their mind, the best thing that could happen is if that other person was wiped clean off of the face of this earth. And into the midst of that madness comes a voice from the heavens that says, do good to that person. Love that person. What do you mean love that person, Jesus? Love that person. Will the good of that person, Jesus, Man, I might be hurt if I do that. Well, that's what love is. Love is putting yourself out there, willing the good of another person at a cost to yourself. If it hurts you, it hurts you, but don't worry. It hurt me too when I went to the cross. But just as my father vindicated me, so my father will vindicate you. And when the world is made whole, you will see in ways you've never seen before. And all will appear beautiful and wonderful in that moment. And so in this moment, trust me that what I see in the future is the present reality in the now. Because I am the Jesus who stands with you at every moment that you love your enemies, when they spit in your face, they spit upon me because I am near to you and it's impossible for them to spit in your eye without the splatter hitting me as well. I stand with you when you love your enemies, know that you are loving them in the power of the resurrected Messiah and so love them. This is what Jesus calls us to. Love your enemies. You say, well, how? How do I love them? What does that look like? Well, Jesus, because he knows everything, is going to hook us up. Here's what he says. Do good to those who hate you. Okay, the wonderful thing about this is that these little next few statements that Jesus gives don't require a lot of commentary, do they? We want them to require a lot of commentary. These are the kind of things where, look, in reality, here's the funny thing. The funny thing is is that throughout the history of the church, we've spent hundreds and hundreds of years and tens of thousands of pages trying to write and work out the details of how is Jesus both God and man at the same time, and how does this, and how does, and we rack our brains full of all these wild theological equations that we try to sort out. And in reality, when it comes to this, this is what we really wish that we had to sort out, don't we? We wish this were as just hazy and backwards and just mysterious in terms of trying to interpret it as the Trinity, because then we might be off the hook. Well, you know, I just couldn't quite figure it out, like the three and one and three persons, one, I didn't understand it, and so, man, I just tried to figure it out and prayed all of it, right? Now, I try this song. Well, Jesus, you know, but I didn't really understand when you said do good to those who hate you. I wasn't sure like, I, you know, I, like, what is good anyway, you know? And Jesus is like, listen, you know what good is. You know what good is. Why are you saying what is good? Do good to those who hate you. That means don't return hate for hate. When Jesus says, love your enemies, let me be very clear about this. Here's what Jesus is saying. And this is why these are the most radical words in human history. What Jesus is saying to you is this. When it comes to your enemies and when it comes to your friends and family, there should be no distinction in your mind. Zero. You should see them all the same. That means when you see this person and they come to you and they bless you, you should say, wow, I love them. And when you see this person, they come to you and they hate you. 
you should say, wow, and I love them. Why? Because this is how we are like our Father who is in heaven, who causes his Son to rise and set and causes the rain to fall on the just and the wicked alike. And therefore, we are to be like our Father in heaven, so we are known as his sons and daughters. I don't want to be known as the sons and daughters of Cain. I don't want to be known as the sons and daughters of Satan. I don't want to be known as the sons and daughters of any ruler of this world. I don't want to be known as the sons and daughters of any philosopher who's ever lived or any sort of person who's dispensed wisdom or religious knowledge. I want to be like the one who went to the cross because the one who went to the cross was capable of taking the violence of others into himself spitting it out into a grave and rising victorious over it three days later so as to say death doesn't have the final say and this maddening cycle of violence will one day come to an end and the way it will come to an end is because the one who loves his enemies the most is the father and he will redeem the world and until that day the world can be loved and can be changed by the children of the father who do like the father that's what we're called to so there's no confusion Just do good to those who hate you. Hey, bless those who curse you. We don't need to explain that, do we? Whenever something good happens, you say, man, you know, we'll believe what happened to me yesterday. It was such a blessing. I had this need. So-and-so filled it. It was a blessing. So we're clear on that, right? Well, that means that do your enemies say that about you? Man, yesterday, this crappy day was happening. And then that person blessed me. I thought you hated them. Yeah, but they blessed me. What's that about? I don't know. I tried to ask him. I said, why did you do that? They said, because that's what Jesus did. Well, why did you do it? You're not Jesus. No, but I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be known as these other wackos. I want to be known as Jesus. Pray for those people. Pray for those people who mistreat you. You know what that means? That means going before the Father in love on your knees and praying the blessing of God upon them. When is the, look, we all have these prayer lists, right? We get in our missional communities each week. We get our, oh, pray for so-and-so. He's going through some, pray for this, pray for that. All right. How many mornings of the week are you praying for your enemies? Yeah, the, the person at work you hate, the person who hates you, the person who you don't like to see, the person who gets under your skin, the person who you're quick to judge and to say, you know, I just think that person's like this and that and the other. And you know what? And the reality is, is that they're thinking that you're like this, that, and the other. And so what does it mean to just get on your knees and to just pray for that person? Do you pray more of God's blessing upon those who persecute you, abuse you, and mistreat you than you ask God to bless yourself? That's the measure. That's the love that he's talking about. That is the love. Make no mistake about it. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And when he calls us to that, he calls us to that as the one who has authority over heaven and earth. And we are to be known as those people who look like Jesus. That's the call. I want to read you a story. I want to read you a little story as I close out here comes from a great little book written a number of years ago by a guy named Brian Zahn called Radical Forgiveness. And I close with this story, and we'll pick back up here again next week. During the Armenian Genocide of 1915 to 1917, one and a half million Armenians were murdered by Ottoman Turks. And millions more were raped, 
brutalized, and forcibly deported. From the Armenian genocide comes a famous story of a Turkish army officer who led a raid upon the home of an Armenian family. The parents were killed and their daughters were raped. The girls were then given to the soldiers. The officer kept the oldest daughter for himself. Eventually, this girl was able to escape and later trained to become a nurse. In an ironic twist of fate, she found herself working in a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. One night, by the dim glow of a lantern, she saw among her patients the face of the man who had murdered her parents and so horribly abused her sisters and herself. Without exceptional nursing, he would die. And that is what this Armenian nurse gave. She gave him exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor pointed to the nurse and told the officer, if it weren't for this woman, you would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse and he asked, have we met? Yes, she replied. After a long silence, the officer simply asked, why didn't you just kill me? The Armenian Christian replied, because I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. 